question that's been on my mind probably for the last decade is how do people change? It's one of my favorite questions. And how we answer this question has to drive our discipleship. We are all sinners. Therefore, we all need to change. But for some, our brokenness is such that we cannot thrive in life. Often toxic family situations in our early lives lead to failure in keeping jobs, failure in keeping relationships, and other consequences of this is uh, unsocial behaviors like substance abuse, crime, obsessive behavior. Maybe we've been there and have... um, experienced amazing change but i'm sure most of us in this room have people that we can think of people we wish could just change and we want them to change because we love them we want them to thrive we want them to experience joy we want them to know healthy relationships We want them to be able to flourish, to find something that they're passionate about, to to dedicate their time to in a way that seems to, to fit with the gifts that God has given them. But when it's been years of toxic behavior and it seems like no intervention ever seems to help, it's probably reasonable for many to lose hope as well that change will ever occur. For Christians, we always have hope. And in our, our text is about a radical transformation. When I first read the Gospels, I remember being confused about the crowd that asked Pilate to kill Jesus. I didn't understand how altogether they wanted to execute a man whom they seemed to know was innocent. It, it didn't make sense to me. This is what mob behavior looks like. People get into a mindset, they start to do crazy things, and it seems like nothing can stop them. Our text tells us about radical change. Some of those who wanted to kill Jesus start believing that Jesus is Lord. This is the change that we read about um, in the whole Acts chapter 2. And now we've gotten to that transformation piece. In Peter's sermon in Acts 2, verses 14 through 36, Peter argued that Jesus' death, his resurrection, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit were fulfilling scriptures. Because of Peter's sermon, according to verse 37 in Acts 2, his hearers were pierced to the heart. So how does that happen? We want heart piercing to happen. How does it happen? We're such emotional creatures. We can probably convince ourselves of almost anything. Conspiracy theories and then cults and all that, I think, is explained by this phenomenon. Human beings can be convinced of almost anything. And often the, the, the firmer we are in those beliefs, the longer that we've had them, it seems, humanly speaking, the less likely we are to change. And yet, sometimes change happens. Peter addressed Jews who believed in God. 
They believe the prophecies about the future outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They believe the Psalms in which it seems like there will be a future Davidic king who is going to come and reign forever. Um, Peter's sermon seems to hit all the right notes. Then he makes it personal as well. He appeals to what they know. He appeals to what they have seen. And he's appealing to events that have just happened. The result, 3,000 of them are pierced to the heart. They experience a sense of anguish. If you were in the, the text, for those who weren't there last week, Peter is accusing them of killing the author of life. And so if Peter is right, there is much to, be, um, to experience anguish over. They had just killed the God that they claimed to worship. At this point, they ask, what must we do? So what I'm going to do in the rest of our time today is look at three questions. The first, uh, the first is, how do you become a Christian? The second, who can become a Christian? And then the third, what do you receive when you become a Christian? First question, how do you become a Christian? In verse 37, 38, and then 40 and 41. How do you become a Christian? Repent and be baptized. Pretty simple. Peter accuses his hearers of being guilty of killing God's anointed one. They are pierced to the heart, verse 37, and in verse 38, uh, and they ask what they need to do. Peter answers in verse 38, repent and be baptized. Then we read at the end of our text in verses 40 and 41, Um, that those who received his words were baptized and 3,000 were added. Okay, so first, repent. This message of repentance is consistent throughout the Bible, whether it's the prophets in the Old Testament who are calling the people of Israel to turn back to God. They're to shun their idols and turn back to worshiping the living God, or even in the New Testament. Ministries of John the Baptist, the ministries of Jesus, was repent for the kingdom of God is near. Uh, Due to the nature of the kingdom of God, God's reign was coming to reverse the consequences of the fall in order to partake in this kingdom. People had to change radically. They had to change. Uh, This is a definition of repentance. It is turning away from the evil that we have perpetrated, having an intense abhorrence for the sins we committed, in experiencing a complete turnabout of our lives and adhere to Jesus' teachings. Definition of repentance. Repentance is a lot more than having insight. It's believing the truth and changing our lives in light of that truth. So in Acts 2, it refers to people's attitude towards Jesus, whom they had killed. So repentance is believing his proper identity, but also submitting to him and living to serve him. And depending on your religious background, you're like, okay, we're talking about repentance. Classic Christian message. Repentance is not just some kind of oppressive religious talk. When you're unhealthy, 
and commits to living a healthy, uh, healthy life, there is challenge, but also so much joy in living in a way that agrees with how our body works. And so it is also spiritually with repentance and living the life that the Creator wants you to have. It's a, a life where we experience the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, generous, self-control. Probably skip the um, It is also a, a life of enjoying intimacy with the Creator of the universe and also harmony within the local church. And so, yeah, repentance is, it can sound like churchy or oppressive language, depending on your background, but, but really it is for our good. Second is um, need to be baptized. In Acts 2.38, Peter connects baptism with the forgiveness of sins. Other verses do this too. Uh, we know that we're not saved by baptism. Um, we know that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It is the blood of Jesus that washes away sins, not the waters of baptism. But baptism is a picture of the washing away of sins. And so the, the biblical authors connect baptism with the reality that it represents. One example is Acts 22.16, be baptized and wash away your sins. So we see that, that they're so closely connected. Similar connection also um, exists with the Lord's Supper, where we eat bread and we drink wine, but in the process we're feeding on Jesus. In both cases of baptism and the Lord's Supper, it's only by faith that one benefits from what the sign represents. Our last note on baptism is every Christian must be baptized if they have not been already. It's through baptism that you join a visible um, or, or local congregation. So if you've never been baptized and are curious about that, please feel free to ask. There is great hope in Peter's answer. Peter's message of repentance is a gracious one. Peter has accused his hearers of the unthinkable. They killed the author of life. Now they're pierced to the heart. They ask of, out of an anguish, what must we do? Peter's accusation of them was so severe that humanly speaking, it would be right to expect they went too far. But it is never the case with the Christian message. It is never too late. No one has ever gone too far. This is also the offensive part of the Christian message. There is always a way. It is repent and be baptized. I have shared this with unbelievers who, to my surprise, have become a little bit angry. Um, some say people should not be offered, some people should not be offered this opportunity to repent and be baptized for the washing away of sin. They claim that some people have done things that are too horrible that they no longer deserve to hear the good news. They fear that the Christian message 
maybe leaving an open door for people to keep living the way they want and repent on their deathbed so that they can go to heaven. This anger, I believe, reveals self-righteousness. What they're communicating is that they deserve this good news if, if they want to repent because they're the kind of people that are good enough for whom they can repent and then be forgiven. But I know that I need the door to be open for all to repent. Or how can I know that I haven't done too much evil and I don't deserve to be able to hear the gospel respond and experience the forgiveness of sins? I know I've hurt people badly. And so maybe I'm on some person's list that that person should not be allowed to repent and experience the forgiveness of sins. The message repent and be baptized is a reassuring message that ought to give hope to all. So if you're not a Christian, this is the Christian message. We, we believe that the whole world was made by God for his glory. Human beings are creatures in this world with a special purpose to give glory to God, but also with responsibility, give glory to God. And when the world denies its makeup, we're living outside of the purposes for which God has created us. We are all worshiping creatures because God created us to worship Him. When we worship other things, such as sports, music, a career, um, ourselves, celebrity, um, we are not going to find the satisfaction that our hearts long for. Repenting is turning away from a false view of the world, of God and Jesus, and turning to believe the right thing and living in light of everything Jesus taught. The best news is that Jesus makes repentance possible for all. He makes it possible and effective as well for the enjoyment of abundant life for all who would uh, listen and do it. Um, for those who are Christians, for those who have already repented, we need to keep repenting. And the goal isn't to become a Christian again, but to keep following Jesus and to confirm that we are followers of Jesus. The goal is we want to be following Jesus in the present. And so repenting a long time ago doesn't do any good now if you're not willing to repent in the present. In many ways, in many parts of our lives, we live like unbelievers. We do not think about the glory of God in when we make decisions or the way that we live. And so we need to continually repent, turn to God, and make Him the object of our joy and of our delight. Repentance is acknowledging what we have done it involves digging to the root of our sins. And repentance seeks idols that we live for. It looks for areas of pride, perhaps sources of false identity, um, areas in which we may be more sensitive or insecure, ways or maybe friends may notice you seem to, to justify yourself more in this area of your life, that that could be a, a hint of an idol that needs to be repented from. Another hint is anger. What makes you angry? Uh, often that could reveal the source of an idol. 
in the second half of repentance is turning to God. It is pursuing Him, living for Him, wanting to see His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It may involve putting to an end a relationship. It may mean um, apologizing to someone that we have hurt. It may mean changing our entertainment habits and how we use our money. Repentance is broad, and to everyone will have uh, different things that they need to do. That was point one. Number two, who can become a Christian? You, your children, and those who are far off. Acts 2, 37, 39, and 41. In our text, Peter invites all to come. He tells those who hear that the promise of the Holy Spirit is for them, their children, and those who are far off. The implication is very broad. No one is off limits to coming to faith. The phrase, this promise is for you and your children and those who are far off, probably sounds a little bit obscure. And I don't think that we share the gospel in that way. Maybe some of you do. I don't think we do. But it sounds obscure, but it is a biblical Phrase. It's a biblical allusion to Genesis 17. Uh, in the text that David read, Genesis 17, 7 to 13, the phrase, you and your offspring, you and your children, is repeated five times. So over and over and over. God is making a covenant with Abraham and his children. God promises, um, the promises God makes to Abraham, is he's also making with Abraham's children. And then God gives Abraham a sign, and he's to give that same sign to his children as well. Um, This is true even um, though some of those children will never come to faith and never get to benefit from what the sign represents. According to Romans 4.11, circumcision was the sign of Abraham's salvation by faith. And so we see that circumcision, the sign of salvation by faith, was given to adults who believe. Um, and, and circumcision, in this case, confirmed that they were benefiting from what the sign represents. But according to Genesis 17, the sign of salvation by faith was also given to believe, to the children of believers. So that once they had faith, uh, they, would rep- they would receive everything the sign represents. And this is how circumcision works. But because Peter introduces baptism and seems to be alluding back to Genesis 17, referring to the promise for you and your children and those who are far off, um, it seems like he's indicating that giving the sign of salvation by faith to those for whom the promise is given. According to this text, it it could be that he's also saying give baptism to those who believe and to the children who receive those promises as well. For this reason, many Christians believe that the same way circumcision was given to male children of believers, baptism is also given to the children of believers. A common objection is that the text makes it clear one must first repent 
and then get baptized. So because this is the, the, this is the beginning of the New Covenant era, it is normal in this case to, to stress that adults were becoming Christians. They had to repent and then um, get the, the sign of the New Covenant. Um, but we also see there are cases in the Old Testament, Exodus twelve forty eight, for adults to join the people of Israel. They also had to repent and then receive circumcision. So it seems like there's continuity there. And then the promise is also for those who are far off. This means the promise is also for the non-Jews. And as we continue in the book of Acts, we'll see that non-Jews are also going to inherit the promises that God made to Abraham. They're going to receive forgiveness of sins. They're going to receive the Holy Spirit as well. So um, for application, now we, when we, we live in a city that is so diverse and what a joy it is. Even today, we're a smaller crowd than normal, but just to, to look around all the different nationalities um, here. We are, unless you have Jewish descendants, we are those who are far off, for whom the promises is given as well. But what we see just in this room today, Jesus is for all people. So as a church, we want to communicate, Jesus is for all people. We recognize by the, the way we have to make some decisions. Um, and so this church is not going to be the best fit for everyone. But we want to be for all people. So we are a, an international church because we believe Brussels needs healthy international churches. We recognize that the language is going to be, um, will limit the diversity in some sense. Um, if you don't speak English, this is going to be a hard community to be part of. And no matter how much we try with the, the volume of the music, um, the amount of, of movement during the songs, I meant physical moving, dancing, um, uh, no matter uh, what we do with uh, the, the length of our services, our expression of Christianity is culturally bound, and to some extent it will be Western. And so, so those, those are going to be the limits, perhaps, for some. Um, but we want to be for all people. We, we uh, want the doors of our church to be extended as widely as Jesus' arms are. And so this is going to affect how we do membership. If you are a child of God, you can be a member at this church. Point number three, what do you receive when you become a Christian? Um, the forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit, verse 38. So those who repent are baptized, and according to verse 38, they receive the forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit. We can say that baptism is a gift. It is the, the mark on the believer and the seal of everything that the sign symbolizes. It confirms God's promises that are obtained by faith. Baptism confirms that God washes the sins of those who believe and that, that God also gives them the Holy Spirit. So for those who have faith, Baptism means your sins are forgiven. If we have faith, our baptism means we cannot fear or must not fear the judgment 
that is to come. This is a, a judgment against sin. Our sins are forgiven because Jesus faced God's judgment for our sins when he died on the cross. The second gift Christian receives is the Holy Spirit. Receiving the Holy Spirit, particularly in the book of Acts, is connected with the power to be God's witnesses. First in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the rest of the world. So this is still true for us today. We have power from on high to be um, Christ's witnesses, to, to share about who he is, what he's done, that more people would hear the good news and, and join the, this expanding kingdom, the kingdom of God. But now to go a little bit more broad from the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit has other ministries. He allows us to understand God's will in the scriptures. He is the one who softens our hearts to receive God's truth, to be willing to humbly apply what we read. The Holy Spirit strengthens our faith so that we're more sure than ever of what Christ has done and we're in that case, better at enjoying our salvation and more eager to share about it with others. A lot more can be said on the Holy Spirit, particularly John chapters 13 through 16. Talk a lot about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That will have to be for another time. So uh, to conclude, our text, Acts 2, 37 to 41, is foundational um, in for the history of the church. In the, for the first time, we read about what this empowered witness uh, that uh, Jesus commissioned his, uh, the apostles to do looks like. And we also read about the result. Peter bore witness to the resurrected Christ. People are pierced to the heart. They are told they need to repent and be baptized. And then 3,000 people were added that day. Today, all Christians benefit from the witness of the church, and we are now part of that witness as well to the ends of the earth. So some who were part of that mob um, who demanded Jesus's crucifixion later realized that they murdered the Son of God. Then they ask, what must we do? No matter what anyone has done, no matter how far a loved one appears to be from God, there is always hope. They can hear the gospel. They can respond. God still pierces hearts today. And people repent and get baptized. Let's pray.